You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, good morning. Uh, let me welcome you. Join my voice with the others in saying it's so so good to have you with us this morning. My name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors, and uh, it's great to just be with you and to be opening God's Word with you this morning. We've been working our way through Daniel, and we're making a real change uh, in, the, in the text today as we come to a new section, section 7 through 12 of the book of Daniel. Today, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 7. Today, I want to talk to you about the only conspiracy theory that you should believe. Now, let me put my cards on the table to start. I am not one for conspiracy theories. I don't believe them. Now, if you are, uh, we can still be friends. Uh, Just don't email me and tell me your latest theory or that you met Elvis down at the Bucky's or something. Uh, Keep that to yourself, but we can be friends. I just don't want to spend any time or invest any emotional energy, especially when we have so little emotional energy in these days. I don't want to invest any emotional energy worried about the Illuminati, worried about the Rothschilds, worried about Knights Templar, uh, the Trilateral Commission, Q, the Deep State, or trying to figure out whether or not 5G technology causes the coronavirus. Yes, that's out there. Don't Google it. I'll save you the trouble. It's out there. We are in a fertile time for conspiracies. And the reason is because we are in a pandemic. And whenever there is a major world event like Y2K or whenever there is a great tragedy like 9-11 or the COVID-19 pandemic, two things are for sure. The first thing that's for sure is that conspiracy theorists will explain the event telling us it's not what you think. There are covert individuals. There are organizations in the shadows, and they are controlling the whole situation, maybe even the whole world, and making this thing happen. Now, granted, it's not provable, but if you know the secret and you can follow all the clues, it will all make sense. I said there's two things that we can know for sure. We can know for sure that when we're in an event like this, the pandemic, conspiracy theorists will be sharing their point of view. But the second thing we can know for sure is that Christians will be lining up to believe the theory and to pass it on. And friends, this, well, this is sad. It's sad because we're gullible. But you know what's even more sad than our gullibility? What's more sad is that in our fear, we are grasping for a way to make sense of evil and suffering in the world. And rather than look to the plain teaching of Scripture, we opt for a mysterious story and explanation that explains what's really going on behind the scenes. It brings us some comfort because we're in the know and we have a way of making sense of the world which is controlled in the shadows. Well, Scripture offers something much better. And today when we turn to Daniel 7, it's the beginning of the apocalyptic section of the book. 
Now, apocalyptic literature in the Bible is God's way of pulling back the curtain and showing us what's really going on behind the scenes with the struggle between good and evil. And thus, this is the one conspiracy that you should believe, that when the curtain comes back, there are principalities and powers actively at work against God's purposes and God's people. But apocalyptic literature always leaves us not fearful of the principalities and powers, but confident in the God who rules over all things. In the Bible, apocalyptic literature shows us just this, how the forces of evil oppose God. And it does so not by telling us a story, but by using symbolic images, numbers, uh, crazy creatures that are bizarre and frightening, actually. This is how it explains to us. Its aim is always to show that God rules over evil and that ultimately he will judge and destroy evil and usher in a new heaven and a new earth. Conspiracy theories are the speculations of comfortable people in the West with a laptop and an internet connection. But the apocalyptic uh, literature of the Bible is far different. It's written to people who are actually suffering oppression. In Daniel 7, this is written to people that are in exile under the thumb of Babylon. The book of Revelation, which is the New Testament apocalyptic book, it's written to people who are in seven churches that are suffering physically under the tyrant Domitian in the Roman Empire. And it is showing them the hope that is found in God as they endure beastly persecution Apocalyptic literature always gives comfort and hope, telling us that regardless of what you see on the outside, behind the curtain, your sovereign God is on the throne, and your future and the future of the world rests in his control, not in the control of a mysterious cabal. Well, let's look at the vision that Daniel has that shows him what's really going on in world history. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 14 in chapter 7, and that'll be the vision. And then we'll look at the rest of the chapter later, which is the interpretation of the vision. So let's read together God's holy word. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked at its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh." After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, 
I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words and the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. That's intense stuff, friends. Daniel gets this dream in the middle of the night, and he writes it down. And the first sentence of the dream is so key. It's so easy to pass over it, but it really sets the trajectory and sets the foundation for the whole vision. It's easy to skip over it and move to the beasts and find out who's the little horn with the eyeballs that's talking. Who's that guy? And try to speculate and figure it all out. But we got to get this first sentence. Look in verse 2 of chapter 7. Look what he says. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, here it is, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea. Now, we've talked about before that the sea is representative in, in the scripture of chaos. In the Old Testament, it represents chaos, a place of vulnerability, a place of danger, a scary place. And so out of this chaotic place comes these chaotic beasts doing devastating damage to people on planet Earth. But what comes right before that is it is the four winds of heaven that stir up the sea. Four is a number of kind of wholeness. There's four seasons. There's here four winds, north, south, east, and west, and they come from heaven. It is God's wind that stirs the sea, and from there, the scary stuff emerges. But the scary stuff doesn't arrive independent of God. God is at the beginning and aware of this whole situation. It's like Daniel 1, where we read that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. The whole exile was the result of God's action. 
The beasts are not independent creatures acting on their own. It is God's power that stirs the sea and allows them to emerge. Make no mistake, he's in control of the whole scene. The exile didn't catch God by surprise, and these four beasts don't catch God by surprise either. And this is how we must view the world. We must view the world through the lens of God's control. We must realize, we must seek to every day peer beyond the curtain by looking at the Scripture. Peer beyond the curtain and see God's role, see God's faithfulness, see God's promises, see the risen Jesus. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but anyway, that's where we want to look. God has never lost control. Well, there's four beasts and these are, these are quite, quite interesting characters, aren't they? The first is a lion with eagle's wings. But then the, the wings are ripped off, and the lion stands up on two feet and receives the mind of a man. The second beast is a bear. But Daniel says the bear is, well, he's sort of raised up on one side. What does that mean? Well, it probably means that he is ready to pounce, I mean, in this alarming scene of the bear, he's already eating ravenously. I mean, did you get this description in the scripture? It is that the bear has got three ribs between his teeth. He, he, this, is, this is an intense bear. He's jacked up on one side, ready to pounce. Spit and blood are coming out of his mouth as he's chewing some type of animal or human or whatever he's eating. And then the voice arise and devour much flesh. This is intense. The third beast is a leopard. He has four wings on his back. So he's ferocious, he's quick, he's agile, he can fly. Uh, and on top of that, he's got these, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the wings, which he has four heads. I'm sorry, he has four heads in addition to the wings. So the four heads, he can look in all direction. He's dominant. He's quick. There's a universality about him. He can travel quickly. He can maneuver uh, fast, and he can look in all directions. But none of these beasts compare to the fourth. This is the dominant beast. This is, well, this is truly beast mode, this beast. He is different from the others. He's terrifying. He's dreadful. He's exceedingly strong. He's not like an animal. The others are compared to animals, lion, leopard, bear. He's not like an animal. We get here that he has iron teeth. Later in the chapter, he has bronze claws. So this is like a robo-beast. This is like something that is not animal but is like machine. It's absolutely horrifying. He devours into pieces, and then he stomps on everything that is left. And on top of that, he's got ten horns. So he's got these ten horns on him, and while he's, Daniel is looking at the vision, another horn pops up, horn number 11, rips out three other horns from their roots, has eyes looking around, and is talking, is popping off. He's arrogant, this little horn on the beast. This is scary stuff because the world is a scary place when tyrants lead kingdoms. That's the story of humanity and it's, it's pictured here in, in very vivid terms. We're so, so we're supposed to feel kind of an ominous vibe from this passage, uh, especially when it is contrasted with what we see next, because the vision shifts. And in verse 9, he looks and sees thrones and the Ancient of Days 
on his seat, taking his seat. So it's probably a vision that's like a split screen. He can see these beasts coming up out of the water, and he can see their activities down below. But up above, there's something else going on. There he sees thrones, and on the throne he sees the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is a term that just refers to an older person, but clearly here it's a picture of God. And while all this horrendous destruction is going on on the screen down below, what is happening on the screen above? Well, God is sitting. God is sitting not because he's an apathetic onlooker, but because he is the sovereign who is not threatened by evil, but rules over all. Sinclair Ferguson says, human kingdoms are always caught up in feverish activity, military or diplomatic, but the Ancient of Days was seated. He is never taken by surprise, never undecided, never in a panic about his world. He reigns. In the face of the terrible havoc that people are able to cause, Daniel is reminded that ultimate authority does not reside in Babylon. It does not reside in Persia. It does not reside in Greece or Rome. It resides in the hands of God. And he goes on in the chapter to remind us ultimate authority does not reside in Washington, D.C. It does not reside in London. It does not reside in Beijing. It does not reside in Moscow. It resides in the throne room of God where God sits seated in authority, ready to judge without a panicked bone in his body, as it were. He's clothed in radiance. He has white hair. He's on a throne that's a chariot. It's got wheels of fire. So he's in a chair of fire. There's wheels of fire. Uh, There is a river of fire before him that separates him from everyone else. There is a blazing holiness about his character, the shine of his clothes, the whiteness of his beard, the fiery chariot and the river of fire in front of him. And there are 10,000 times 10,000 in front of him. Now the vision goes back down to ground level, and we see in verse 11, the beast is killed. His body is cremated, and all the other beasts lose their ruling power as well. Then it goes back up, verses 13 to 14. A son of man comes with the clouds. He comes not down to earth, but he comes up to the ancient of days. He's given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all may serve him, and he's given an eternal reign. He's the son of man riding on the clouds. What is that about? In the Old Testament, there is never a reference to anyone coming in the clouds but God. This individual is God, and yet he's a son of man. He's human. It's very clearly the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, who refers to him himself more frequently as the son of man taken from Daniel than any other uh, name in the Gospels. So that's the vision. No wonder Daniel was... Within my spirit, I was anxious, and the visions in my head alarmed me, no doubt. So what happens next is we get the interpretation of the vision, verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four beasts are four kings who shall arise from the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. 
Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom." Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it into pieces. As for the ten horns uh, out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones. He shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Well, Daniel receives the interpretation from an onlooker in the vision, and really the summary of the entire passage, the, the interpretation was found back in verses 17 and 18. The four beasts are four great kings who shall arise from the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. So there are four kings with limited authority and limited reign over a limited amount of time that shall battle the saints, but the saints shall reign forever, forever, and ever is what he says. So that is the purpose of the whole dream. And if you get that, uh, we're not into any speculating yet. You get the heart of the passage, and that is, uh, that is more than any of us uh, can imagine how great that is. The vision mirrors chapter 2. He says the four beasts are four kings. You remember back in chapter 2 when, if you've been tracking with us, when Nebuchadnezzar had a vision and it represented four kingdoms. He was the head and the first kingdom. And it said four kingdoms will come after you, or three after you, four total, and then there will come a kingdom that will rule over all. Well, that's the kingdom of the saints, the kingdom of Christ and his people that's referred to here. That's sort of the fifth eternal kingdom. But the four kingdoms in the statue vision of chapter 2 probably mirror the four kingdoms here. It's the exact kind of language. It's the exact kind of picture. Um, and, and ultimately, the, the first king is Babylon. That's what the vision of chapter 2 told us where Daniel is. So there's no reason to really believe that there's anything different going on in chapter 7. Now, there are different views as to who the other beasts represent, and it's really the fourth beast that Daniel's concerned about. In 19, he says, I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast. So without detailing all the arguments, and they are plentiful, the two most common explanations is that these are successive kingdoms. The first is clearly Babylon, and the fourth is either Greece 
or it's Rome, depending on how you view kingdoms two and three. So if the beast is Greece or Rome, who is the horn? Who is the horn? Well, verses 21 and 22 say that as I looked, the horn made war against the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and the judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So the, uh, the identity of the horn is tied to the saints beginning to receive the kingdom. When the saints possess the kingdom, they defeat the horn. And we can know who the horn is if we know when the saints receive the kingdom. In the New Testament, we find that Jesus arrives on the scene and he brings the kingdom. The main message of Jesus is this, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what he says more than anything else. He comes to bring the kingdom. He gives his life for our sins. He dies buried. He's raised to defeat the power of sin. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. He pours out his Holy Spirit, and he gives his followers his kingdom. We are called to spread the kingdom. So the kingdom comes in Jesus's first coming, but it doesn't come in its fullness. Its fullness comes at his return when heaven and earth are joined and Jesus physically reigns on the new earth and we reign with him. So in the New Testament, the kingdom is already come in the presence of Jesus, but it's not yet here in its fullness until he returns. So there's really two times the kingdom is said to come. It comes in Christ in his first coming and at his return. But the vision doesn't differentiate the kingdom between the first and second coming of Christ. So this makes identifying the little horn difficult. Does the, does the saints battle the little horn as a result of the first coming, or is this something that happens at his second coming? One possible way among a myriad of ways of accounting for the kingdom coming in Jesus first and then coming in its fullness later is to see the beast as Rome uh, or a ruler in Rome that defeats, that, that seeks to, I'm sorry, that seeks to battle the people of God, but is defeated. As Jesus died, he's buried, he's raised, he empowers his people and they spread the kingdom so that the kingdom is still advancing, but the Roman empire collapsed long time ago. So that's one way of viewing it. Uh, an, another way of viewing it is would be that, uh, that in the future when Jesus returns, that that's when the horn is ultimately defeated. In that case, the horn would be the man of lawlessness, the person Paul calls the man of lawlessness, or the person John calls the Antichrist. This would be a future figure. So the beast precedes the, the little horn, it could be that the beast represents Rome and the persecution against God's people uh, at the first coming of Christ and the kingdom's battles there. And later, the little horn arises, which is what happens in the vision. Later, the little horn arises, and that is the wrap-up of all history. There are other options with very reasonable arguments attached to them. And I think it shows that we must major on the majors. 
I'm not confident that anybody can nail down today the identity of the little horn. But what I am confident is that we can celebrate the Ancient of Days on his throne and the Son of Man who rules and gives the kingdom to his people, both today and in its fullness in a day to come. That's what we can be certain about. The purpose of apocalyptic is for us to receive comfort and hope and strength. It's meant to strengthen our soul in difficult times by pulling back the curtain and showing us who is on the throne, not pulling back the curtain and showing us a chart of what will happen in what time. Uh, You know, how do we apply something like this? Well, I want to argue that it's possible to apply this passage in a soul Uh, you know, a soul-feeding kind of a way without being able to identify every particular of the vision. And the proof of that is the first readers received this in exile and didn't have a clue who the little horn was. He was coming way down the road, and yet this was written to encourage them, to cause them to persevere and to endure because they knew the Most High was on the throne, and this mysterious Son of Man, who we knew, who we know and they don't, would one day come. It was sufficient to encourage them. So how do you apply apocalyptic? Well, I think we apply it. I read one commentator said this way. I thought this was really helpful. Her name's Wendy Witter. And she said, apocalyptic reshapes our worldview, adjusts our attitudes, and deals with our emotions. And we're in a time today where this is really helpful. We need our worldview adjusted, not to to buy into a speculative theory about what's going on, but to be rock solid that behind the curtain God rules and is in control and will see us through his people to the end. We need our worldview built along the worldview of the passage that we just read. We need our attitudes adjusted. When we despair and we want to give up, a vision like this says the kingdom is coming in all its fullness for his people. Press on. A passage like this says it's worth it. It's worth it. He is worth it. And it deals with our emotions as well. This is a time of understandable anxiety and fear. And rather than reaching out and trying to grasp some speculative theory that's on the internet, we need to be going to the Lord today and grasping the solid truth to comfort our emotions, knowing that God is faithful. And even when we can't see, he is sovereign, that he loves us, and that our story is hooked into his big story. And in his story, he wins, as do his people. Well, let me give you three takeaway points from the passage, and we'll wrap up, that I think these are three takeaways that I think shape our worldview, that, uh, that de- help us with our emotions, and help adjust our attitudes when we want to give up as well. Here's the first one. Evil is real. Apocalyptic literature, and Daniel 7 in particular, shows us the real nature of evil. The fall has poisoned humanity, and sinful people will seek to establish their kingdoms, to oppress fellow humans, and to especially persecute the people of God's kingdom. Scripture represents government as a delegated authority from God meant to do good. Scripture teaches us that government is good. We are to respect and honor our leaders. We are to pray for them, and government is a gift from God. But its leaders are flawed, and sometimes government runs off the rails in a beastly rebellion. Apocalyptic literature in the scripture, and Daniel 7 in particular, applies the doctrine of depravity to politics and shows us what happens when tyrants rule. 
Ian Dugget, in his commentary on Daniel, wrote this. He says, For now we live in the day of monstrous beasts. They have authority to rule and to kill and to eat. They are even permitted to triumph over the saints for a while. Some of those beasts have human faces. They are the persecutors of the faithful in Sudan and in China and in Saudi Arabia and in North Korea. They are the terrorists who fly planes into buildings and blow up innocent people on buses and underground trains. Some of those beasts take the more institutionalized form of economic systems. Communism treats human beings as if they were raw materials that exist merely to further the interest of the state. Meanwhile, capitalism, too, can show an oppressive, beastly face. Companies that treat their employees as commodities to be used and then carelessly discarded when they are no longer needed are furthering the beast's agenda. Likewise, those who exploit the political weakness of developing countries in order to maximize their own profits are doing the beast's work. Beasts are present today in nations that persecute and harm innocent people, particularly God's people. Uh, That's what the apocalyptic literature deals with. And beasts are found raising their heads uh, in economic systems where individuals take advantage of other people. Evil is real, and the Bible never shies away from it, and it paints a very, uh, a very sobering picture to what depravity looks like in political systems. Number two, evil is real, but God has evil on a leash. Evil is on a leash. God rules over evil, and it's coming to an end. The battle ain't over yet. Evil holds sway for a limited time. Daniel finds out it's time, times, and half a time. It's this limited period of time that evil is allowed to have its sway. But one day, everything will be changed. One day, verse 27 says, The kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be made an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. That's the end of the story. That's the direction and the trajectory of all history. And that should build our confidence that God is not caught off guard by any institutional, any national evil. He's not caught off guard by the coronavirus and a pandemic that has brought suffering physically and economically to many. He's not caught off guard. He is good. He is faithful. He will uh, have his purposes endure until the end. Evil is real. God has evil on a leash. And lastly, remember who's on the throne. Remember who's on the throne. Daniel saw rampage below, but then he looked up and there's this scene of the seated ancient of days, and the book's open, ready to bring judgment, judging the beast, the son of man coming before him and receiving the kingdom that endures forever. It's not one kingdom that comes after another and another and another. It's forever and ever shared with those he's bought for his own through his own sacrifice. Remember who's on the throne. Sinclair Ferguson says, our gaze must always penetrate beyond the terrible events of history to the throne of God. 
Are, are, are your eyes, are my eyes penetrating beyond the events of history to the throne of God? Only in the assurance that he reigns will we be able to live triumphantly when we cannot trace or understand his plan of victory. If we're not looking to his throne, Ferguson writes, if we don't see his throne, then we're not going to live with confidence and endurance when we cannot trace his hand, when we cannot see what's going on, when life doesn't make sense, when suffering is so prominent in our gaze, we must look to him. Remember who's on the throne. Our eyes must look to the throne during the terrible events of history, he writes. That's so true. That's what Daniel's talking about. Let me ask you today, where are your eyes looking during these days of terrible events? Are you most attentive to the virus? That's my temptation is to find out what's the news, what's going on, What's the, what's the chart? What's the trend? What's the curve? Where are we? What's going to happen next? It's a big temptation, and we should be informed. But is that primarily driving my worldview? Is that driving my attitudes? Is that driving my emotions? Where's the throne? What are you most attentive to? Is it the economy? Is it our political leaders? What are you drawn to look at? Or are you looking behind the curtain to see Jesus ruling the world and calling us to be responsible in his kingdom, to exercise the authority and the responsibility faithfully wherever he has placed us? Is there more going on in the world than we see with our eyes and that the news media reports? Absolutely. But when the curtain is pulled back, what captures our gaze is not a human conspiracy. What captures our gaze is the ruling and reigning ancient of days and the Son of Man who has died and risen to defeat evil and hand the kingdom to his people who will, who will be vice regents with him, ruling forever and ever and ever, a kingdom without end. Where are we looking? Evil is real. God has evil on a leash, and its time is short. Where are we looking? Are our eyes on his throne? For Daniel 7 tells us, in troubled times, in confusing times, when life doesn't make sense, this is the reality behind the curtain that secures our heart and grants us power to press on and endure. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this vision that we find in Daniel 7. We see similar visions in Ezekiel and Revelation, these passages, these mysterious sort of grandiose visions that we see in the Bible. They, they communicate. They communicate something emotionally. They communicate something powerfully to our hearts about the seriousness of evil, but more about the glory of our God. Lord, we ask you to lift our eyes to you. We ask you to root our hearts in your reign, in your character, in your faithfulness. Lord, when we don't know what's going on, we pray that you would draw us ever back to you, that we may rest, that we may be filled with your spirit to be faithful, to do what you've called us to do. Lord, you have placed us in various places to exercise and to share and to communicate your reign on your earth. 
May we be faithful to be your people in the places that you've placed us. May we look to you. We confess our weakness. We confess our sin. We confess our fear and anxiety. And we ask you to strengthen us with the truth that you reign and will reign forever. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.